This episode briefly mentions suicide. We don't go into detail, but it is a part of one person's story. Please take care as you listen. You are listening to Undercurrents. My name is Ken Ogasawara, and I'm part of the communications and community engagement team at Mennonite Central Committee in Ontario. This podcast is an ongoing experiment to find a new way to tell the stories coming from our community of partners, program participants, staff, and others. Undercurrents is brought to you by Kindred Credit Union. Kindred's purpose is cooperative banking that connects values and faith with finances, inspiring peaceful, just, and prosperous communities. Built on a radical vision to see mutual aid put into faithful practice, Kindred works alongside partners like MCC to empower communities both locally and globally. This episode is about making gifts and receiving gifts. Material Resources Out of all the programs we have at MCC in Ontario, Material Resources, as a name of a program, is kind of dry. While other program names range from descriptive, like migration and resettlement, to poetic, like walking with people in poverty or indigenous neighbors, to darn near inspirational, like restorative justice. But material resources is just, what is it even? Material resources is one of the relief hands of MCC. This is John Liebold, material resources coordinator for Ontario. Uh, we collect items in, in Canada and the US uh, to ship overseas to people in need. We work off of a request model from our partners who are living and working in country. They know the needs, they, they live and they work there, and they know what's available um, locally for in-country purchases. If items are available, uh, then they prioritize the, the in-country purchase of goods. Where material resources fits in is when those items aren't available for whatever reason, uh, then our partners can reach out and request them from us. Uh, and then, then we go out and collect those items from, from all of our donors and uh, prepare them and, and ship them to the people in need. There is much about relief aid that is necessarily utilitarian, essentials only, since it is being sent to people who in many cases have lost everything. And when I say lost everything, I'm not exaggerating. Consider the contents of an MCC relief kit, which includes such basics like shampoo, laundry soap, toothbrushes, towels. When you're in a position where even these basic necessities are not available, it's easy to imagine how catastrophic their loss has been through war or natural disasters. But despite, or maybe because of, the dire conditions people find themselves in, the Material Resources Department aims to elevate the aid that they send. Here's John again. All of the items that we're sending are gifts. When gift giving, we want to always give our best. If I were to give you my um, blanket that I had as a child uh, that I loved, and it's, it's the most valuable possession in the world to me, um, even though it's ripped and, and dirty and torn, if I were to give that to you and tell you that, uh, it would mean a lot more to you than if I were to mail you that comforter uh, without any kind of explanation. 
we need the quality of the item to speak for itself. John's example of his favorite blanket is a good one, because one of MCC's signature relief items is the comforter. So, you want from the beginning? A comforter is a handmade blanket, usually 60 inches wide by 80 inches long. I've asked Lori Koch, a longtime material resources volunteer, to walk us through the steps of creating a comforter so that we can fully appreciate what goes into it. Where does it begin? Well, people know that we do comforters, so that they bring in all their stashes. We sort through it and we start putting it as pieces small enough to cut into blocks. So a block is a 10-inch or 8-inch square of fabric used to create the unique and beautiful patterns on the comforter top. These cupboards over here is where they get put. They're all sorted by size and color. Pastel prints, pastel solids, greens, purples, dark prints, light prints. There is an astonishing number of color categories that these blocks are divided into. They take the design process very seriously. And so divided into weights of fabrics, heavies, lights. Okay, so then, and then we make the line, and then, and then, so then we go back all done. Then it goes over to the men usually because they need something to do. <laughs> they're pretty picky about how good the comforters look when they're sent out. It takes about eight hours to create a comforter from start to finish. Over the last five years alone, MCC has shipped over a quarter million of these handmade, unique comforters from the U.S. and Canada. Over MCC's 100-year history, the number of comforters lovingly hand-sewn and sent to those in need is uncountable. Now, in this day and age, it would be quite simple for MCC to bulk order tens of thousands of factory-made blankets and save a lot of labor. So why do we continue to hand-make our comforters? We need the quality of the item to speak for itself. We need the materials that we're sending to be of such high quality and um, our comforters to be so beautiful that when the people receive them, they, they truly can feel that we care about them and that we haven't forgotten about them. I like to be able to do something that might help somebody else have a bit better of something. Like I, I put myself in their position thinking, what would I do with, I think of all the blankets I have on my back, especially in the winter time. And I'm thinking even one comforter, it's better than nothing, but even that I would find hard to <laughs> manage with one blanket. But yet on the other hand, if they have nothing, this at least is something that they can feel that somebody somewhere in the world is thinking of them. Here's a story about how one such handmade item changed the life of a young girl in a refugee camp over 40 years ago. I can't believe it. After all these years, you're still around, I'm still around, we still <laughs> see each other because a long, long time ago, I thought once all these kids grow up, yeah. I will may never know them again. This is Lee Vang. Her kids and I grew up in the same small town community in southwestern Ontario. She now lives in Kitchener and has five children and six grandchildren, most of whom live under the same roof with her. 
Her daughter-in-law is my co-worker, graphic designer extraordinaire, Shua Vang, who brought out a bowl of lychee fruit to the back patio where Lee and I were sitting on a beautiful summer day. But the story of how Lee got here starts in Laos in the early 1970s. When I grew up, my dad had two, we call a wetland farm. Mm. And um, then we also have a mountainside farm. My childhood, I have a lot of freedom of uh, good memory that I have uh, my own horse, um, my white white horse, which usually my dad would send me to go and pick up tool from my other uncles, um, aunts, and sometime when we ran our salt, they would said, you go and pick up some salt and peppers uh, from uh, aunties. So jump on my horse and I feel like flying. Through creeks and valleys and hills, Lee would fly through the lush countryside. She says she felt as free as a butterfly. I remember some of my friends went to school and they would ride the bike and they were, you know, talking about how fast the bike and how beautiful the bike. I feel pretty bad, but in time, I also um, said to myself that, no, I don't need to get mad on that because my horse is the best, a 10 times better. Yeah. And so that is still some of the memory that I, yeah. Then the Vietnam War began to spread into Laos, where Lee and her community lived. So when the Vietnam broke, um, we left everything behind. Um, I, like the farm, the house, uh, the houses. And so when we, when we leave, um, my dad took my white horse and another uh, of our brown horse. Uh, and we took two horses to basically to carry all our food. Um, and then we crossed uh, the mountain, the rivers, we walked. Uh, on foot sometime, all day till midnight. Sometime we even walk at night because of the dangers. And so uh, when we get to Thailand, we are going, we move into a refugee. And in the refugee, there was no food for the two horse. Lee's father was forced to get rid of the brown horse. And to this day, Lee doesn't know if it was sold for meat or traded for labor. Lee got to keep her white horse after begging her father. Then, one day, Lee was leading her horse to the creek for a drink. The horse's front legs sunk deep into the mud at the edge of the creek, and in its panic to get out, got its neck tangled in the long grasses growing on the water's edge. The horse began to choke. I couldn't help him. So I ran and got my dad. He told me to stay, don't come. And so I was stay far. I think he knew what happened. So he, he told me to stay. And so I had to stay and just a distant watching. 
my dad got some people to help him take out the horse. But the, the horse, as I watch, there's more and more people come. I didn't understand what's going on. And I kept crying, crying. And by the time my dad come home, come to me, he said, you just have to let go. He's gone. He's dead. And I asked him why. He said, I can't rescue him. He's suffering. And he died. And so I allow all these people to come and take the meat, his meat. Some days later, Lee was sitting with her family, finishing lunch. Her aunt had joined them for the meal. After we eat, my aunt was next to us, and she said, so what did you have for lunch? And I said, my mom makes some uh, deer jerky. She laughed, she laughed, and she laughed, and she laughed. I said, why? Why you laugh so much? I never see you laughing so much. Tell me why. Her aunt finally told Lee that it wasn't deer jerky she had eaten for lunch. It was dried meat from her horse. And I, I feel sick in my stomach, and I went and puke. I, I hold against my aunt for many years. For Lee, the death of her horse was not just the loss of a beloved friend. It represented the true end of her carefree childhood and all the good memories that came with it of riding horseback through the hills and fields. These treasured memories were now poisoned with pain and trauma. Meanwhile, her present reality was equally hopeless. Lee couldn't understand why they had left their home behind and why they were penned up in this refugee camp with nowhere to go, no school, no work, no gardens. Lee fell into a depression and was by turns angry and bitter. She contemplated suicide. I guess I was a teenager trying to learn to be who I am and understand why my life has been changed so much and sometimes blaming my parents. Why do we end up in this place? I did have a um, suicide thought that life, if it's just like this, then it's not worth living it. I, I complain a lot to God, and I said, Lord, you are God, but why you allow all these things happen, and why my life and our life become uh, so poor now? We have nothing, and we have no home, no dream, no place to go, and where is home? What is your purpose of creating us to, to be like this. During these painful days, Lee would sometimes muster the energy to wander around the camp just for something to do. One day, on one of these walks, she saw a growing crowd of people at a tent near the entrance of the camp. 
voice. So I went in and I saw some white people who are handling um, stuff to people. And I got pretty exciting. So I pushed myself in, got in line. When she got to the front of the line, Lee was handed something that would change her life forever. It was a soft, rectangular cloth bag, exactly 11 inches wide by 16 inches long. It was made from a navy blue patterned fabric, and it had a frilly heart stitched onto the front. To me, it's beautiful. Like, I haven't seen anything like that. It's just, it just really beautiful to me. I got really exciting, and I think, wow, this is so beautiful. The heart shape immediately caught my attention, and then uh, suddenly the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave and his only son, and whoever believe him and receive him shall have eternal life. And that came back to me, and I said, I, f- I forgot to. This is used to be my favorite Bible verses, and I remember it awesomely just appeared. And then when I opened inside, um, I saw the notebooks, and I saw uh, pen and pencils, and I was quite happy. And so I start to um, start to write things um, that I remember, like song and the three, John three sixteen and all the, among other things into the notebook. And as I start to keep writing like that, um, the people. And the refugees saw me, and so they said, oh, so you know how to read and write? And I said, "Uh, yes, I do. And so they will ask me to write letters. Can you write me a letter to my sister, to my aunt, to my uncle, and to my children? Lee was writing so many letters that she was running out of pages. So she took her ruler, and drew in extra lines between the lines on the page and wrote in tiny lettering to maximize the space on the page. Most of the other Hmong people who have a long story, had to tell the long story about their life, what happened to my child, what happened to this. And so now we live in here and we need money. And sometimes some of that story takes so long and take a couple page and by the time I finish, my finger will go you know, it's the red mark and it's hurt. And so I start to get mad and I said, I, want, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to refuse these people. Lee persevered and continued writing. However, more pressing matters soon took over as her family was sponsored to come to Canada and a new and exciting life awaited her. She did recall putting her most valuable possessions in the school kit bag, her hair clip, her comb. But after she arrived in Canada, she completely forgot about it. I think it was maybe about 18 years later or so. I took the youth to go and do packing at MCC uh, 50 Kent. As you may or may not know, kit packing, as it's called, is a great activity for community volunteer groups to come together and pack relief supplies to be shipped to those in need. 
Most times, these groups have fundraised for or purchased the relief supplies themselves. Under the guidance of material resources staff and volunteers, folks get a real hands-on experience of being a part of something special. MCC sends all kinds of kits, sewing kits, hygiene kits, relief kits. But the one that Lee and her youth group were packing that night were school kits, exactly like the one Lee had received nearly two decades earlier. Lee was stunned. Her memories came flooding back. And when we packed those bags, I remember, just like I remember John 3.16, that I totally forgot it, and now it came back. And so I thought, wow, could it be possible? I remember I had something like this. And so I told my husband, and as soon as we get home, I went and searched from, from the basement to the top. And I found, finally found it. And I just took that time, I just want to prove to myself that um, this is not just a memory or, you know, a deja vu thinking. I want to prove to myself that this is reality, that I do have a bag that like this. When Lee and her family were resettled in Canada, she wanted to focus on her new life, a safe, prosperous future with her family. She was determined to leave her past behind and refused to talk about it for years afterward. The farms, the creeks, the valleys and hills. Her horse. It was too painful. But rediscovering her school kit bag unlocked something inside of her. When this came back, um... I started thinking, I said, this is a good memory. This is my life. This is who I am. And I should share and not only to um, keep it to myself, but to um, everyone who's around me, including my children and to the uh, teenager that I lead now at church. And so that's when I began to open and share my story of the school kid. There were other ways in which Lee could start to heal from painful memories. One morning, years after she had started a new life in Canada, she was visited by a ghost from her past. In the morning, early in the morning, I have a dream that my horse came and it was bright in the morning and my horse came and he spoke to me and said, Lee, wake up, wake up. And I woke up and he said, I'm here, jump on me. I jumped on his um, back and he took me for a ride. He ran and I felt the winds and the beauty of the grass. He took me to a place. It was so peaceful that it's all green grass, a valley a full of grass and then trees and beauty. He told me that I'm at peace, I'm in a good place and you don't need to worry about me and you should be happy and he said from now on be happy because I'm happy um, my tear was not sorrow but good memory of my childhood this bag actually really changed my life because I remember I was just thinking that I'd rather die uh, having this life in a refugee 
camp where there is no school, there's no hope, there's no dream. You can't do nothing like that. And, and what's, what is life for? What is the meaning of life? That's what the question I have constantly asked God. And um, when I got that bag, I totally, it changed me from wanting to die into wanting to live. And I start to feel like alive again and useful again. I start to say to myself that be joyful, live day by day. A better day is yet to come. And so my better day did come. I did come to Canada and have a new life. In an upcoming episode of Undercurrents, we'll hear how a woman and her family were saved through miracles. Not supernatural ones, but simple and holy acts by strangers that had profound and lasting effects on her and her family. I think this theme applies in this story, too. The comforters and kit bags, made from donated fabric, are not, by themselves, miraculous. But when thousands of volunteers team up to create tens of thousands of comforters and school kit bags, year after year, decade after decade, that is a kind of miracle. The volunteers will likely never know the family or individual they're sending it to, but trust that it will reach who it needs to reach. They trust that the love they put into each stitch would be felt no matter how far it had to go. We've heard from Lee Vang how miraculous that school kit bag was in her life. And she's just one out of hundreds of thousands who have received these gifts over the years. If you're interested in volunteering with material resources, reach out to your local MCC office. They would love to get you involved. I want to thank Lee Vang for sharing her story with me and with many others over the years as she's embraced all of her life, her past and present. I want to thank John Liebold and all the other material resources coordinators across Canada and the U.S. for their work. And of course, I want to thank Lori Koch and the thousands of other volunteers who, stitch by stitch, give their best for those who need it the most. This episode was produced with help from Kristen Kong, original and theme music by Brian McMillan, artwork by Jesse Bergen, and mixed by Francois Goudreau. Huge thanks again to our sponsor and community partner, Kindred Credit Union. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please write to us at podcast at mcco.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Finally, I would like to thank you for listening to Undercurrents. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Ken Ogasawara. Have a great rest of your day. <laughs>